HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's been a, a long journey, you know, with the pandemic that hit last March. New Orleans is known for their food and their beverage. And once the pandemic hit, a lot of those things, you know, really hindered the festiveness of the city. And then now we just, you know, it's two weeks since the hurricane Ida has hit. And it's it's a pretty somber energy in the city. I think people are just trying to rebuild and wrap their heads around, you know, what has happened. But I, I think that what the pandemic has taught us and also this hurricane is that we can't take things for granted. And you have to be very flexible and you have to constantly pivot which is what everybody in the restaurant industry has done for the past 18 months, is constantly thinking on your feet and just trying to get by each day successfully and also for the long-term haul, if that makes sense. That's Chef Nina Compton on HRN series Inside Julia's Kitchen. She's reflecting on her experience running a New Orleans restaurant through the pandemic and in the wake of Hurricane Ida. Due to the worsening effects of climate change and the devastation wrought by COVID, the restaurant industry and the food system at large have had to pivot. Pivot entered our daily vocabulary in March 2020, but conversations about how to do things better, more efficiently, and more equitably have continued to evolve. This week, we're resurfacing discussions that rethink our food system, reimagine hospitality, and aim to rebuild the restaurant industry. I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. As Nina Compton's story goes to show, the life of a New Orleans restaurateur is a perilous one. In the restaurant industry, one bad month, let alone a year, can ruin a business. And on the Gulf Coast, hurricane season means a single storm can wipe away years of hard work in a matter of hours. Resilience is a prerequisite for success. Louisiana native Donald Link understands this better than most. 
Donald opened his first restaurant, Herb Saint, 21 years ago, making it a veritable dinosaur by industry standards. Somehow, he's thrived despite facing a murderer's row of certified restaurant killers. Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the Great Recession, COVID, and most recently, Hurricane Ida. In the aftermath of 2012's Hurricane Sandy in New York, Donald sat down on episode 59 of the archived HRN program, You Look Hungry. He recounted his experience with Hurricane Katrina to host Helen Holliman in hopes that his words might help restaurant owners struggling after Sandy. Now their conversation resonates again. So people know you for Kashan and Herb Saint and Butcher, my favorite place to get the best boudin in New Orleans. And I'll never forget how you reopened Kashan in the most unusual set of circumstances shortly after Katrina. So if you don't mind, can you describe your experience and how you got back on your feet? Actually, Kushan was under construction during that time, and Herb Saint was the one that was kind of priority at the at the moment. Um, you know, I, I evacuated and uh, and told everybody to to do the same because uh, I knew from growing up here that this one looked worse than all the others I'd ever seen. Obviously, there was a couple days of just pure freaking out, <laughs> uh, and after that, it was like, okay, so what do I need to do here? Let's get Herb Saint open. Let's, uh, you know, put off this, this decision to open Cochon for at least a couple of weeks so I can focus on what to do with Herb Saint. I mean, the whole thing was just really tricky. But the, the point was, I wanted the restaurant open and I wanted the people to get back to work. Everyone was asking me, what are we going to do? What's going on? You know, I lost my house in the flood. A lot of people lost their house in the flood. So you got a lot of people without homes and without clothes and, you know, and, you know, and everybody came together, and it was just, um, you just do it, you know. I mean, I I never realized the importance of a restaurant until I reopened after Katrina. And it was kind of a symbolic thing of, like, everything's going to be fine because, you're, you know, your your neighborhood restaurant is open. And I, I really felt the importance of being part of a community at that point where you can really see people come in and, feel like they, they were back to some sort of normalcy, even though the city may be just devastated. You know, at least you can go in and, and these closed walls and feel like everything's going to be all right. And I think that's what restaurants do. I think restaurants are kind of a, you know, they're a meeting place. They're, they're places that people go to relax and, and you know, and you know feel good. And I think that having that after a storm and having, those, having the restaurants kind of get back, you know, so you can go get your, you know, your favorite dish or your glass of wine and, and feel like everything's going to be fine. Donald thinks those experiences after Katrina changed him for the better. Here, he offers some words of support for other restaurant owners who went through similar struggles after Sandy. You know, it's, it's what you do. I mean, it's a, obviously a, a terrible bump in the road. It sucks. And it's, it's costly. It costs money. It's weighing the what could have happened and, and just having the ability to reopen is a, is a, is a gift. I, I, the way I see it. Yeah. If you, if you can come back from that, I think it makes you a better restaurant. While Donald was referring to bouncing back after a hurricane, that same mindset can be applied to COVID. Next, 
we'll hear from Libby Willis about how to rebound and reimagine hospitality when you can't reopen. We talk about this a lot with, you know, just the the post-COVID return to work. I think people are committed to not going back to the way things were and have, you know, found, you know, for better or worse, this new level of um, freedom to sort of do what they want and and to be their own boss. And I think, like like you said, people are doing all different kinds of creative things to to make that um, sustainable rather than just a temporary blip in, in in our food system. That's Alex McCrary, co-host of Opening Soon here on HRN. He and his wife and co-host Jenny Goodman spoke to Libby Willis, owner of the recently shuttered Mimi's Diner in Prospect Heights. Mimi's was a well-known restaurant and queer community space for three years until it closed its doors amidst the coronavirus pandemic in November of 2020. Willis found that closing her beloved diner allowed her to reimagine a completely different model of hospitality that moves from individual ownership to a collective. I had, I mean, I had a problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had, I had a lease. Um, I had, you know, all of everything that I had invested into the space was was um, was sitting in the space, you know, um, and I needed to figure out what I could do to um, to maintain it, and I so I sort of had to work backward, and simultaneously. I had in the community all of these friends who had lost their restaurant jobs and still wanted to cook and still wanted to share. And we saw a huge uptick in pop-ups and new ways of providing hospitality to people during the pandemic. Um, But the difficulty of running a food business you know, didn't change. Um, and, you know, in the case of like Dacha 46, you know, they were doing as much as they could out of their apartment. And I saw that I had a kitchen space and that there needed to be a boundary in their lives between work and home. And, um, it just made sense that we could share the burden Um, and then I was like, well, you know, how do we maintain ownership over all of our particular businesses, um, while, while using the resources that I have? Um, and so it just became, you know, figuring out the exact right, um, mesh of small businesses to keep the space afloat. Um, I talked to everybody about my about my um, wild idea, and um, we we just got to work on it, figuring out exactly exactly how it was going to be equitable to share the space, talking about the finances, um, you know, and about the kinds of transparency we wish we had seen in other restaurants. At Libby's Restaurant Kit, the acronym for Keeping in Touch, there are three main businesses that currently operate in the space full-time, while other business owners are invited to sublease residency spots in a model similar to a pop-up. 
Sharing a common space minimizes overhead costs for small businesses. You know, running a small business with a small team takes a lot and having something that's available every day, it takes a lot of money and is a hard work-life balance. And so, you know, coming in for a month or two in a residency and, and figuring out what you want your future business to look like is a luxury that I'm like really happy to be able to help provide to people while being on the benefit, like I'm benefiting from it too. So it feels like this like really symbiotic relationship where we get to share resources with each other. To learn more about resource sharing and collective reimagining in the restaurant industry, listen to Opening Soon, episode 82. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Recently, a wave of multinational corporations announced measures to implement regenerative agriculture. From Nestle to Pepsi, even Cargill, conversations about regenerative farming have left the field and entered the boardroom. While this movement grows, the exact definition of regenerative agriculture remains elusive. One of the main things that they noticed with this study is that the definitions did tend to fall into sort of three overarching categories, um, which they called processes and outcomes, and then a combination of the two. Meet Joe Fassler, who recently published an in-depth report on regenerative agriculture at The Counter. He looked towards a study conducted at the University of Colorado Boulder to help him pin down a definition. That's sort of a fancy way just for saying some folks define regenerative agriculture in terms of the process you might use on a, on a farm. So that has to do with how you farm. And then there's a whole other different school of thought that is outcomes. And that's just like, we don't care what you do. It's just all about the benefits that we can measure. And then there's a third, which is kind of says that both the what and the how matter. As the definition of regenerative agriculture continues to evolve, some communities are left out of the debate altogether farmers of color or, you know, advocates for, for farmers of color. 
folks involved with agroecology, both on the ground and in the university, native agronomists and farmers really have not been given a seat at the table when it comes to hashing out what these terms should mean and how they should be quantified. Farmers of color and native agronomists have implemented regenerative practices like intercropping, no-till farming, and irrigation systems that conserve and manage water for generations. When you're talking about a kind of farming that's supposed to make the world better, it's actually also a huge missed opportunity in terms of benefiting from the knowledge of folks who have been, you know, using some of these principles for a very long time. Denying these farmers a seat at the table is just one barrier to entry to a thriving agricultural market. As more multinational corporations begin to employ regenerative agriculture, Joe hopes they can reimagine its current definitions. You also simply can't actually achieve some of these regenerative outcomes without a more equitable agriculture. It's one thing to just raise a bunch of commodity corn from the landscape using, you know, one guy on 400 acres in Iowa with a combine. Um, if you, if you're, what you're really trying to do is produce an ecosystem, you need people on the land, you need the watchful eye, you need the skills. And so the challenge isn't only can we sequester carbon, it's how can we get more people on the land and not only that, but pay them properly so that they can live joyful lives on the land in a way that serves the environmental outcomes we should all want to achieve. Learn more about regenerative agriculture and its relationship to social justice and our food system on episode 44 of The Big Food Question. Innovation rarely involves completely new ideas. Instead, innovators improve on a classic and make the case for its modern-day relevance. This is true of regenerative agriculture, which draws from indigenous agrarian practices, And it's also true of the food we eat and how we eat it. Now, to the revival of an all-American pizza style with unpretentious origins. When we talk about tavern pizza or bar pizza, by nature, there's got to be simplicity. It's got to be a pretty easy process because it was started out in bars. The purpose of the pizza was to get people in there to buy drinks. Even though my family owned a pizzeria, my very first pizza memory was pizza in a bar when I was four years old. And I remember distinctly, and I can track the time, because my aunt lived in an apartment above a bar. And we went to visit her, and my mom and my aunt and I went to have pizza. And she moved out of there when I was five. So I know I was four years old when this, when this took place. And we went into this bar, and I was, you know, it was dark and mysterious and smelled like beer, like old beer. And, <laughs> and we got a pizza. That's yeah. my first pizza memory, was that pe- the smell of that pizza and biting into it and burning the roof of my mouth. That was John Arena, one of the pizza yodis on episode 12 of HRN's Pizza Quest, which brings together some of the world's foremost pizza experts in conversation about pizza making and artisanship more broadly. If you've ever risked a bite of a slice before it's properly cooled, then you know the saucy, molten consequences. But have you ever crunched into the crackly crust of a bar-style pizza? On this episode of Pizza Quest, host, renowned baker, and award-winning cookbook author Peter Reinhardt and his guests detailed the history of bar pizza and its current renaissance. We'll let Peter explain the fad a little more. 
depending on where you grew up and what you called it, bar pizza, parlor pizza, uh, tavern pizza. Everybody has their own reference points on this. So what we're going to do is talk for a few minutes about this era because this style is coming back big time. And we think maybe a great possibility could be the next big trend now that Detroit style and Roman style have all had their moment in the sun. We're looping back around to a time where uh, many of us have sort of a nostalgic connection. But what is bar pizza? And where can it be found in the wild? Another one of Peter's guests, Adam Kuban, is serving up his own take on this style at his Brooklyn pop-up Margot's Pizza. While similar pies can be found across the U.S., he traces the bar pizza's origins back to a few pizza joints in the Northeast. But my two big influences are Star Tavern in New Jersey, Star in Orange, New Jersey, and Colony Grill, which started in Stamford but is now uh, franchising has several locations. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, we'll probably see more of them now that the style is sort of like caught fire again. Yeah. For bar style, um, I always blab about this. I'm very careful to call mine bar style or bar pizza. Because there's a place, um, there's a few places here out on the East Coast that uh, serve versions of this. Um, now, the South Shore of Massachusetts, it's a huge hotbed of bar pizza. And slightly different from the stuff I make, which is influenced by New Jersey-style bar pie or bar pizza, Star and, and Colony are very thin. Whereas uh, the South Shore bar pies, I think, are a little thicker. Um, the one thing that unites them all, though, is they're all cooked in a pan, started in a pan, once they set up and the crust is firm enough to pull, to stand on its own, they're pulled from the pan and then flashed on the hearth of usually a deck oven. Wow. Uh, now there are some places that do it completely in impinger ovens, but to me, flashing it on the deck uh, kind of gives it this very almost indescribable texture that I feel you miss doing it all in the pan. We won't ask Adam to describe the texture, but we will ask to have a bite. As we reflect on the processes of rethinking and reinventing this week, remember the comeback tale that is the bar pizza. And make sure to let it cool before you chow down. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Plus, find links to listen and follow all the podcasts we shared in this episode. Special thanks this week to Amanda Silva, Isaac Furman, Angie Fike, Sam Burroughs, and Julian Smedley. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, Write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>